And I guess that's the whole chapter. In December 1992, a video was released of a popular song. I was going to give you the genre of the song, but I don't want you to check out. So, it was a song. It was the same old theme as any ordinary song, Boy Pursues Girl. But the twist was the girl only had one defense. No matter what the pursuer said, her defense was the same. He was eloquent and he would insult and ridicule and try to discredit her man, but she remained steadfast. I got a man. This was, the, this was her only defense, but this was also her offense. No matter what approach the pursuer used, whether it was flattery, aggression, persuasive words, she defended herself with this statement, I got a man. Though not everyone can identify with a blank song, well I can tell you now because not everybody can identify with a rap song, we all resonate with the message everyone wants to have a man in their life that they can depend on. Someone who can do the job. Eve declared, Eve, the one in the Bible, not your neighbor, the one in the Bible. Eve declared that she received a man from the Lord, and every blood-bought believer has the same testimony, I have gotten a man from the Lord. The narrative we will read today is about sin and its consequences. Yet Moses wrote this narrative to remind the children of Israel that God will deal with sin, the devil, and death through one man. God promised that the victory would be from the seed of the woman. As we read today, we will highlight the deceptiveness of sin, the destructiveness of sin, and God's disposition towards sin. We will end with God's solution for sin. So now, if you're there, even if you're not there, I'm going to give you still some time to get there. We're in Genesis 4, and we're going to be reading the whole chapter, I think. 1 to 26? Yes, the whole chapter. This is God's word. This is the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so, this is the word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. <clears throat> now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of the time, in the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why have your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I could bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken out on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Iran, Irad, and Irad fathered Mehuhahel, and Mehuhahel fathered Methusel And Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zilhah. Adah bore Jubal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilhah was also Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. They didn't know who they were? You wives of Lamech. Okay. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For, she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also born, was, also son, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At, the time, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and we give you praise for your word. We pray that you help us to understand it, but better yet to apply it to our lives that we may grow in grace. Others will see and call upon your name. And we thank you in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. The children of Israel were in the wilderness, and Moses wrote this law to instruct them. They had been steeped in Egyptian culture, and they were about to enter the land of Canaan. They were chosen to be a light to the nations, and if they were going to succeed in that mission, they would have to reflect the light of God. The only way they could be done is that the principles of the law would be lived out in their lives. This is why Moses reminded them of these words just before they entered the promised land. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 11. It's Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to those to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. If you know the Lord, it is our responsibility, it is your responsibility to follow his word. It is not the responsibility of the world to follow his word. It's the responsibility of the world, those who are not like you, to receive Christ. And then they must follow God's command. So they were commanded to obey the law. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not murder. The section of scripture we will study today is called a narrative. It is, important, it is an important genre of scripture for it makes up little half, a little bit under half of the Bible. Actually, 43% of the Bible is made up of narrative. So if you study narrative, you will know or be in a better position to understand 43% of the Bible. The stories written in the Bible illustrate the rewards of obedience and the consequence of disobedience. We will discover that the passage we will study this morning illustrates the breaking of many of God's laws and their far-reaching consequences. But first, there are elements of a story we can highlight in order to understand what the Lord is communicating to us. In a story, we can focus on plot, the setting, or conflict. All of those things help us understand the narrative text. But this morning, we will hone in on two elements only. That's character and theme. That helps unlock what the author is trying to say to us. Again, we must emphasize that the children of Israel were fully formed by the Egyptian culture. Why do you say that? 
You've said that before. Why do you keep saying that? Because we are made up of what we have experienced. So, an abused child will grow up if counseling doesn't take place as it has consequences of that. A child that had a father has consequences. A child that didn't have a father has consequences. You are made up of what has gone and taken place. And unless the Lord steps in and changes that, you're on a trajectory. So, each, so again, we must emphasize the children were fu fully formed by the Egyptian culture. Each culture has its principles, and that is natural, but it, it becomes a problem when those principles run contrary to biblical principles. This is why God's law is important. It is a mirror that shows us our sin, and it also a compass to points us to the solution. Saints at Clifton Park, Community Church. If that's the case, how are you doing with your Bible reading? Some of you have committed to read through the Bible in 2022. I know it's 2022. I know what I'm doing. Not just reading a little at a time, but completing the Bible by 2022. But if you're like me and fail to follow through in 2022, then let's encourage one another to victory in 2023. Are you holding each other accountable? Let's encourage each other and admonish one another to stay the course and finish the Bible. Why is that so important? Why is that so important, Brian? Because it's through the knowledge of God that we understand sin. And why is that important to understand sin? So that we won't. And if we do, we have an advocate and we can repent. This is a pretty simple message, right? Read your Bible so that we are comfortable and that we understand where we go, how we are to walk, and how we are to sit. It's a figure of speech in the Old Testament, right? Walking and sitting and just knowing how we live our lives. Before we jump into the text, we will spotlight three characters in this narrative. We're going to do a character study on Cain, God, and Eve. Not necessarily that order is important, but although Eve was one of the major characters in Genesis 3, which we covered the last time, her role has been reduced in chapter 4, so we will start with Cain and end with God. Seems to be a good idea, right? Start with the sinful person and end with the great person. So, And then you have this lady in the middle, so that's good. In chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain was given that name because it sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten or acquired. Cain is immediately contrasted to his brother Abel. His brother Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Cain was the oldest and followed in his father Adam's footsteps. They were both farmers. As time went by, both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. Now we must be careful, must be very careful here. For many commentators read their presuppositions into this text. So let's just ask a few questions of the text. Was there anything wrong with being a farmer? Well, how do we know that there was nothing wrong with being a farmer? Yes, 
But who else was a farmer? Adam was a farmer. So if there's anything wrong with being a farmer, then the first person that ever created and had a career had something wrong. So we know there's nothing wrong with being a farmer, right? Wasn't the first job, the first one, human one? And if you spend your time and talent in one area, shouldn't your offering come from that area? If, if you spend your time tilling the ground, then you should bring stuff from the ground. If you spend your time tilling animals or messing with animals, not messing with animals, that's the wrong word. If you spend your time dealing with animals, then your offering comes from animals, right? You don't have money at this time, so like we just did, we don't bring money. It's not what we do. We bring what we have. There was nothing inherently evil about tilling the ground. And Abel's offering was not superior because God later instituted the sacrificial system to atone for sin. I have this great debate with a preacher friend of mine. He tells me, no, 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 no. He was, Cain was supposed to bring some animals. I don't know if he was all day with the ground. Where would he get the animals from? You have to steal them from his brother, and that's sin too. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. It just doesn't appear that way. So this is the first mention of giving in the Bible, which is most important. We are informed in other places that we need to give in proportion to how we have been blessed. We have been informed that we need to be a cheerful giver. That's in the Old Te New Testament, right? Those who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly. That's also in the New Testament. These principles provide us with a clue as to what was wrong with Cain and his offering. What do you do? Where do you labor? Whatever you do, God is expecting fruit from your labor. We are so preoccupied with how much to give, we miss the more weightier matters when it comes to giving. Ask yourself, if I were to put a value on what God has done for me, how much would it cost? In the olden days, we used to say, you don't know like I know what he's done for me. It's nice to sing. And you look at the checkbook and they, and they gave a dollar. Well, he hasn't done much for you if you're going to give just a dollar. Right? So you don't know like I know what he's done for me. Let's see that reflected in your giving. Not just the giving of money, but your giving of time. Your giving of love to those who are maybe not, who you feel like don't deserve it. If we'll put a value on what God has done for me, how much would it cost? You make $100 and you give $10 offering. Is that what redemption is worth? Are you giving with a cheerful heart, if all you have is 10? But are you giving with a cheerful heart? Do you actually view giving as a privilege granted to you by the king of heaven? It's a privilege. You should give this way, not this way. It's not a privilege. You can't be counting that as a privilege if your hand is like this. Go ahead, take, take, take five dollars. It's not a privilege. Or do you see it as a chore or a bill to pay? If the Holy Spirit has used part of this narrative to shine the light on your sin of stealing from God's people, I know you don't like me to say that. Then repent and resolve to give abundance. Do I tell you what to give? No, I don't, I don't tell you what to give. 
Let the Holy Spirit move upon you to give in accordance to how you've been blessed. Let's look closely at the word order in verses 4 and 5. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Did you notice it did not say the Lord has regard for Abel's offering? Many of us read it that way, but that's not what it says. It says the Lord has regard for Abel. God was more interested in the heart of the person giving. God did not have regard for Cain. We have to read on further to understand this rejection by God. In verse 6, God said, if you do well, you will, you will not, if you do well, you will be accepted. It was not the offering that was the problem, but Cain's heart. Cain had malicious affections. Those malicious affections were lurking in Cain's heart. That was the problem. And the event that followed, including the murder of his brother Abel, was just a natural consequence of those affections. And here we see the destructiveness of sin. Sin is destructive. The sin in the heart of Cain caused him to kill his brother. This is significant because this sets the precedent of how siblings will react to each other in future generations. This is unbridled sibling rivalry. It must be addressed. And God confronts Cain. The Israelite parents needed to be reminded that this is going to be the natural result of the fall. Parents, News alert. We're never going to be able to stop it. Civil rivalry is here to stay. But the law puts a constraint on this so that every son is not rising up to kill his brother. If there is a harmful sibling rivalry in your family, then someone must step in and be the parent and address the parties. Why the pause? Because it's a serious matter. And this is where we need courage. We need courage to stand up and deal with it. No matter if they're adult children. It doesn't matter. We must deal with it. But I would like you to notice that God confronts Cain before the slaying of his brother. We'll come back to the character of God. But let us continue with Cain. Cain refused to repent and he ended up being the first murderer ever recorded in Scripture. In verse 9, God asks, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? Cain responds, I don't know. I don't know if he made that face. I, I, it just appears to me through the text. I don't think he would say, I don't know. It just doesn't feel that way to me. Um, but we don't know. I don't know. I am not. I am. I'm. Am I my brother's keeper? This response from Cain reveals his deep animosity for what the Lord did. The Lord accepted Abel and his offering. Why these exact words from Cain? Remember that Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not a keeper like him. I know you like that keeper, but I don't like that keeper. 
Don't compare me to him. I'm a tiller, not a keeper. But it wasn't the, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't what he did. It was what was going on in the inside. So let's not lose track of that. God did not compare Cain to Abel, but that was the way Cain twisted it. This is the deceptiveness of sin. We will deal with that next. But let us finish with the destructiveness of sin. Sorry, the deceptiveness of sin. We're going to deal with the destructiveness now. Now Cain killed his brother and lied to God about it. Because of Cain's sin, he is now cursed. His father was cursed and would have to labor to get food from the ground. But Cain's curse is that the ground will never provide him with sustenance. So he will have to wander from place to place for food. Cain had been reduced to a fugitive and a wanderer. Has anybody here, don't say yes, don't say no, don't say it out loud, because then we start having a conversation. But has anybody here ever been pursued? You know, like third grade? And somebody really wants to fight you, and you run? And then the next day, you have to run again? Like, there's a feeling inside of dread. Because you don't know if the third grader is going to kill you. It's not going to kill you, but you don't, you don't know that. But after adult gets involved and they say, squash it, cut it all out, it's over. Right? And the feeling maybe goes away. But think, this was Cain's life for the rest of his life. That feeling, if you ever had that feeling, can you imagine living with that feeling the rest of your life? That somebody is pursuing you always. That's a heavy consequence to his sin. Heavy. And I don't think we talk about it much. I don't think we bring it out of the text enough to know that sin has consequences. It's just there for us to remind us that sin has consequences. We can't see them all, but they're there. Hopefully encourages us to say no to sin. His father was cursed and so was he, but differently. Cain had been reduced to a fugitive and a wanderer. If that was not enough, Cain also went away from the presence of the Lord. Having that feeling of dread, having that feeling of somebody's always pursuing you would be tolerable if you could run to the Lord every time. Whatever you're dealing with, right? Bleeding for 12 years. Something. If you could run to the Lord, then you would get some kind of relief. You would get some kind of... But nothing for Cain. Cain also went away from the presence of the Lord. This is probably worse than being a fugitive. Because as a fugitive, when David was a fugitive, he would run into the presence of the Lord. 
Cain, don't, he does, Cain doesn't even have that. They're forever barred from the presence, this one, Cain, is forever barred from the presence of the Lord. Sin is that gulf that keeps us captive and bars us from the God of heaven. But God has promised to deal with that mighty gulf that stands between him and us. God's got a man. Like that rapper who persists to convince that woman that he was a better way, we must be like that woman. I never said that in preaching before, be like a woman. But we must be like that woman, I got a man. I got a man in Jesus. And he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he is able to completely save to the uttermost. I got a man. When you walk out of here this morning, you probably won't remember half of what I said. But hopefully you remember that I said, you got a man. You got a man who's on your side. You got a man who won't die. He lives forever. You have a man that's continuously praying for you. You got a man. Amen? That's a wonderful thing. Just be careful who you say that to if you're a male. I got a man. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the man, Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we're talking about. And when we get to the text... Verse 17 starts the genealogy of Cain. The not so obvious destructive consequences of sin are found in the short description of his descendants. So sin is making everything go down like a whirlpool. Cain is a murderer, but his family members sink deeper into the abyss of sin. The first person to be a polygamist is a descendant from Cain. And Lamech kills a man for hitting him and brags that God will protect him more than he protected Cain. What? Somebody hits you and you kill them. That's bizarre. Not really. It's sin. Right? It's the consequence of sin. We sin and we can't determine the consequences of our sin. They are more heinous than we could ever imagine. Sin is not something to play with like a toy. News alert. I won't mention the person in this congregation, but this person once told me she dealt very severely. At the time, of course, you can use, you know, your paddle or belt or whatever. She, developed, she dealt severely with her sin, with her children and their sin. Giving them the picture that sin hurts. Sin has consequences. Sin can remain for a long time. And this is what the Lord does. Oh, he doesn't take out his belt necessarily, but he punishes. He gives us consequences when we fall into sin and think, hey, this is fun. It's only for a season you'll be there. If you truly belong to the Lord, consequences are coming. Sin is that gulf that keeps us captive and bars us from the God of heaven. That's what we need to remember. When we sin, we can't determine the consequences. So, we must hate it and repent from sin. We also see the deceptiveness of sin in this narrative. Sin is deceptive. 
Moses characterizes sin with a picture from nature. Sin crouches. So I don't know if you... I don't know if you... If you've seen a lion before, I can't do, I can't pretend to be a lion, but a lion crouches, crouches before he attacks. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a beautiful thing if you're not the one being attacked. <laughs> if you're watching it on TV, it's, it's wonderful. If you're experiencing it, God help you, right? But so the lion just crouches down. And he, you know what he's about to do? He's about to pounce. He's about to pounce. So Moses characterizes sin with a picture from nature. Sin crouches and it devours you, right? It is such a violent and graphic picture. But that is what Moses wants the children of Israel to remember about sin. Though it seems harmless when it lies dormant, when it is awakened, it is deadly and causes permanent damage. What is wrong with those thoughts. No one can see the thoughts that we have. They don't hurt anyone. But what we learn from scripture is that out of the issues of the heart, the mouth speaks. Those thoughts will eventually be lived out. They may not be destructive as murder, or maybe they will. But in the eyes of the Lord, there's no difference. They will be damaging. Repent of those destructive thoughts and resolve to bring it to the Lord. Now let us look at our next character, the maker of heaven and earth. You might have heard it said the God of the Old Testament was harsh, but the God of the New Testament is gracious. Have you heard that? Many churches teach that. Or there was no grace in the Bible until grace and truth came in the person of Jesus Christ. You've heard that. You've had to heard that if you've been around Christian circles. Let me know if you see that after we finish studying this narrative. Adam and Eve sinned. God used questions to get them to see their sin and repent. Instead, Adam hid and shifted the blame to Eve. Remember that? When Cain sinned, God asked Cain, why are you angry and why have your face fallen? Cain did not repent but got angrier. This is a sure sign that we are babies in the faith, if we're in the faith at all. If we're honest, we oftentimes respond like Cain. I know we want to see ourselves as Abel or as Seth, but many times Cain is a picture of us. This is how we respond when God confronts us with our sin. We get angry and we hate the ones who do the right thing. No, it was you who did it. I didn't do anything. You can see it in children a lot. When you, take, when you give a toy to one child, the other child goes, he took my toy. He didn't take your toy. I took the toy and gave it to him. No, it was, it was him. You just see it. But we do the same thing as adults. We compare ourselves to them and then we blame God. But before God makes us feel them, God makes us feel the weight of that sin. But before he makes us feel them, he will ask that question. Those of us who've walked with the Lord for some time has had the experience of God whispering a question to our conscience. Have you had that experience? 
He often does this during the preaching of the word. I'm sorry, it probably happens to me during the preaching of the word. It may not happen to you during the preaching of the word. But it happens to me sometimes during the preaching of the word. And even sometimes right in the middle of my sin. He said, hey preacher, you're not supposed to say you sin. Well, then I'm not preaching God's word then. Because we are all under sin. Right? And we all fall into sin. And at times, I don't need to be in the congregation to be convicted of my sin. At times, the Holy Spirit says to me, you know you're not supposed to do that. And what graciousness God has. Because, you know, God can. He has the power. He has the power for you. If you're going to take the cookie from the cookie jar, he has the power to take your hands and do this. You know he can. If he can stop the sun in the middle. If he can raise, the de- raise, raise, raise people from the dead, he certainly can take your little arm and pull it back this way, but he doesn't do that. He speaks to your conscience. He says, you, you know, you're not supposed, that's a cookie jar. It doesn't belong to you. Don't, don't do that. Sometimes you do it anyway. Sometimes you do it anyway. Most times I do it anyway. Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not like Paul, but I understand him saying he's the chief of sinners. I understand that. The longer you live, maybe you may understand that as well. But he often do it. He often does it during the preaching of the word, and sometimes right in the middle of us. And let us be aware of God's ways and His people. Let us resolve today to ask the Lord to help us to be ready to repent. Because when that happens, we should repent quickly. You know, that's a test to know that you're in the Lord. If you kind of repel from the sin you're about to do, and he says, you need to repent, that's not the devil. (laughs) The devil wouldn't tell you, you need to repent. That's not him. That has to be the power of the Holy Spirit. You know you're not supposed to be doing that. Did anybody hear that? No, nobody heard that. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, to your heart. You're not supposed to do that. And we need to learn to listen quickly. Because some of the consequences that we have or that we're going to endure will be there for a very long time. It may take us to the grave. And God is trying to spare us from that. So we need to quickly repent. Did God strike Adam and Eve down when they sinned? No. He gave them an opportunity to repent, and even after they refused to repent, he covered them with animal skins. Does that sound like grace to you? That's not in Romans. That's not even in Colossians. That's in Genesis. I tell you, don't do that. You do it anyway. Well, the natural reaction is, If you're a good parent, spanking, right? But God covered them. He covered them. Covered them with animal skins. Cain killed his brother. Did God strike him down dead? No, he allowed him to live. And even when Cain refused to repent and complained about his consequences, God put a mark on Cain. 
He didn't say, well, you deserve it. You shouldn't have did what you did. God didn't do that. He put a mark on him. He said, you can't, you can't, can't, can't destroy Cain. Does that sound like a mean God? Or does that sound like grace to you? Don't let people convince you that the God of the Old Testament is not gracious. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we see a gracious God. A God who is compassionate and slow to anger. It is important to know how God is described by others in the Bible. But it's more important to know how God describes himself. Out of all the ways that God could have described himself, what was the first way he described himself? Does anybody know? Good Bible study for Sunday afternoon. The children of Israel were given the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. Moses came down off the mountain, and they were engaged in all kinds of sexual sins at that time. So Moses broke the tablets. When God called Moses to write again laws again, he described himself in this way. Exodus 34. 34, 4 and 7. Exodus 34, 4 and 7. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is how God revealed himself. Out of all the ways that God could have revealed himself, he revealed himself as a person of mercy. The children of Israel were given the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, and Moses came down. God described himself as merciful and gracious God, this is the God we serve. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Sin is deceptive and destructive, but God's disposition towards our sin is gracious and slow to anger. The last character we will look at is Eve. She made two statements that we will look at closely. <coughs> In verse 1, Eve says... I have gotten a man. Of course I changed that to I got a man. I got a man. Does that seem strange to you? What mother gives birth and says, I got a man? Immediately after birth. We call babies by names, even little man. But never I acquired a man from the Lord. What is this about? Well, we have to go back a chapter to see that the hope for Eve was that her seed would crush the head of the devil. The devil that deceived her made her life miserable. How many times has she been thinking about that decision she made? How many times did she say, why in the world did I make that decision? How could I have allowed myself to be tricked 
by that old devil. I think she was thinking about this a lot. How about you? Would you have been thinking about this a lot? Would you have been thinking that the world was perfect? And I messed it up. It wasn't truly true because Adam was there, but you got to believe some guilt was there. I messed that up. God has sent me a man who will get Satan back. But Eve was wrong. Seth was the seed. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman came from the same womb. Jesus' line came from Seth, not Cain. Eve misread the will of God for her life. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you have misread the will of God for your life. It can be heartbreaking at times. Or if you're like me, it's heartbreaking all the time because I do it all the time. It can make us discouraged even to the point of questioning our salvation. I know that's never happened to you. But if I didn't hear God correctly over here, maybe I didn't hear him over here when he said he'd give me eternal life. But don't despair. It happened to David when he thought he was wrong. He was going to build a temple. It happened to Peter when he thought he was going to save Jesus from crucifixion. And it happened to Eve, the first woman to ever walk with God unashamed. Be encouraged just because you don't know God's will for your life perfectly or have misread it doesn't mean that God does not have a plan for your life. Actually, if you were able to discern all of God's will for your life, you would be God. But thank God that he is God, and I'm not, and you're not. Nothing in your life happens by chance. Though you may have misread, it does not mean something happened by accident. God was faithful. He did not send a man but it was he did send the man, but it wasn't Cain. And it wasn't Abel. Eve said, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel. This is true, but he wasn't the seed that would crush the seed, the head of Satan. Seth was the third born, and, the, and his name meant appointed. God had a man that he appointed to be the savior of the world, but it wasn't Seth. His name was Jesus. He was the right man on our side, a man of God's own choosing. I got a man. I want to introduce you to a friend of sinners. He opened up my blinded eyes and he set my spirit free. And all I want to talk about is the man from Galilee. This is the promised Messiah, the one that was promised in Genesis 3 and the one Eve was looking for in Genesis 4. There are many life lessons in this narrative, but the scriptures point to Christ as Moses wants to keep the motif of the coming of the promised seed right before our eyes. I got a man. Hopefully I said it enough that when you go home and someone asks you, what was the message about? You can say, I got a man. What is that? Are you trying to 
say rap music to me? No, 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 not that man. I got the man, Christ Jesus. And you can go right into the gospel. Or maybe they'll come back next week because they'll think you Looney Tunes. And you say, I got a man. And they say, hey, when you said you had a man last week, what did you mean? Pow. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the promised Messiah, the one that was promised in Genesis 3. And Moses wants to keep that motif in front of us. And I want to keep it in front of you. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. Sin is destructive. Let's conclude by saying sin is destructive. We see that in the life of Cain, how he killed his brother and blamed God. Am I my brother's keeper? Aren't you his keeper? That's not my job to look after my brother. It is actually your job, Cain. You were older. And it is our job as well. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves and our family is our closest neighbor. How can we say we love God and we don't see, and our neighbor who we do see, and we say we still know him. We have to help one another. And the closest is those in your family. I know you might not like them. They may rub you the wrong way because they know you like no one else. But this is what we're called to. Sin is also destructive. We can't be fooled by the dormancy of sin. Just because we can't see its destructive effects right away doesn't mean they don't exist. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now we see dimly, but when, we, when he returns, we shall see clearly, for we shall see him face to face. God is merciful and gracious. If I leave you with anything, if you don't remember anything, please remember that God is merciful and gracious. That's a great thing to walk out contemplating, to talk about with other people. Not that sin is destructive. That's true. Not that sin is, 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 is going to destroy everything and destroy your life. That's true. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is God is merciful and gracious. That's a way to end a Sunday service. That's the way to begin a fellowship. Praise God, brother. God is gracious and merciful. This is what we're supposed to do when I say, and amen. And then we all go. And yes, you could talk about how's your mother, how's your grandmother, how's those shoes you bought. But eventually you should say, God is gracious and merciful. He let us just wander at times. Not too much. And then he kind of draws us back. And as parents, we know how wonderful that is because we don't feel that way a lot of times. We don't draw them back. We want to grab them. Stop that. What are you doing? But God doesn't do that. He's merciful and gracious. God describes himself in this way. So this is the quality that he wants us to remember. So come to Christ and let him forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Oh, to our forgetful soul, awake from your wandering dream. Turn from chasing vanities. Look inward, forward, and upward. Let us view ourselves in light of God's holy word. 
immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Our heavenly Father, you are our incomprehensible but prayer-hearing God, known but beyond knowledge, revealed but unrevealed. Our wants and welfare draw us to you. O oh God, attend us in every part of our arduous and trying pilgrimage. We need the same counsel, defense, comfort we found at our beginning. Let our faith be more obvious to our conscience, more perceptible to those around us. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Jesus, while you are representing us in heaven, may we reflect you on earth. While you plead my cause, may we show forth your praise. You have led us on, and we found thy promise true. We have been sorrowful, but you have been our help. Fearful, but you have delivered us. Despairing, but you have lifted us up. Your words of assurance are ever before us, and we praise you, O God. O God, you injured, neglected, provoked benefactor. When we think of your greatness and your goodness, we are ashamed of our insensibility. We blush to lift our face. For we have foolishly erred. We have sinned, Lord. We confess that you have been in our, all of our thoughts, that the knowledge of you at the end of our being has been strangely overlooked, that we have not seriously considered our heart need. Lord, break the fatal enchantment that binds our evil infections and bring us to a happy mind that rests in you. And may our happiness be entwined in doing your will and not in our own comforts. Let your spirit teach us the vital lessons of Christ, for we are slow to learn. Make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.